Hey, this is Randy Robinson, and I'm the pastor of Everyday Church. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope this podcast encourages you, stretches your faith, and helps lead you into a growing relationship with Jesus. Let's do it. Well, good morning. Before we dive in and continue the series, I want to take a moment to talk about some of the things happening in e-youth, if that's okay with you. Can I do that? All right. Over the past uh, year or so, we've been reading through the book of Matthew, and we've been walking through the scriptures verse by verse. And I often remind the students that when they're in English class, if the teacher gives them a book to read for comprehension, do they open it up to a random place and read whatever sentence pops out and hope to gain an understanding? Or, again, I like to throw this at them too sometimes, do they place the book over their head and hope that somehow through osmosis, the words would diffuse into their brain? Or lastly, if the, if the teacher assigns you a book to read for comprehension, do you open it up and read it from left to right from top to bottom? The answer, if you didn't know, is obviously the third. You open it up and you read it, line by line, verse by verse. And I enjoy doing this with the kids for at least two reasons. One is for preparation. It makes it absolutely simple for me. I get to go in knowing exactly what I'm going to talk about. I don't have to come up with anything creative because I'm not a creative person. So it's exciting for me to be able to um, show up on a Wednesday night and just simply talk about the scriptures to kids. I love it. Um, the second reason is that it forces me to read the scriptures and prepare my heart for some of the most challenging things that Jesus said and did. I want to give you a few, um, or at least two examples of some of the more recent passages that we've read, if you would like to hear them. One of them comes from Matthew 15, and beginning in verse 21, it says this, And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. One of the challenging things about this passage is that you have an implication that Jesus was calling a woman a dog. And that's not too nice. I think anybody in our time would get slapped in the face for that. Um, but this was not the first time that Jesus had made a reference to a population of people being dogs. If you read Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, it says this, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample um, them underfoot and turn to attack you. 
There was a population of people in Jesus' time who walked with Jesus, saw his miracles, but refused to accept his truth. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus begins to denounce the cities to where he performed the most miracles, and they still refused to accept him. These people wanted nothing more than to hurt other people and to dismiss their faith. However, his honoring of the Syrophoenician woman's faith brings a greater understanding of this text that we read in Romans chapter 10. It says this, For the scripture said, Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I share that because... No matter how far gone you think you are, no matter how much you might consider yourself to be in that category as a dog or a pig, no matter how wicked your past is, no matter how wicked your present is, if you call on the name of the Lord, you will be saved. Amen. Just recently, we began reading Matthew chapter 18, and I gave the students a preview of the text last week, and I wanted to share it with you because it's applicable to the fruit of the Spirit, especially patience or long-suffering and kindness that we will look much closer at today. So this is Matthew chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. It says this, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two or three of you gather on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. That's one of the most famous verses we hear, and actually it's in the context of reconciling a broken relationship. I frequently exercise this principle when I taught at a private Christian school. Uh, more than once, and fairly often, students would raise their hand and call me over, not for help with an assignment, but to gossip about other students in the classroom. So, sarcastically, I responded by exercising this, this uh, passage that Jesus gives. And I would say, well, it sounds like you have a problem with Sally, and you've skipped the step of going to them directly, and you've come to me to be a witness, so I'm going to arrange it for us to talk to Sally this afternoon, and I'm going to fully disclose everything that you said to me. And believe me, this happened more than once. I don't know why the students thought I was some kind of cool, trendy kid to where they needed to tell me their gossip, but they did. So what I would do is at the end of the day, I would dismiss most of the students and let them go outside. And I would have the two or three students that were gossiping, and then I would bring over Sally, and again, I'm using a pseudonym, um, and I would tell Sally, hey, just so you know, I, I want to exercise what Jesus says to do in this, in this command here. And I'm telling you that they have come to me and they've expressed these grievances that you have, that, that, that they have. And so I'd fully disclose everything. And students would not like that. They would cry and they would complain 
And they would even get up out of the seats and try to leave. But I would say, no, listen, you don't have the authority to do this because this is what Jesus says to do. And believe it or not, by the end of it, I would have them apologize and pray for one another. And it wasn't a pleasing time, but it showed students that one, they shouldn't be talking about others behind their backs. And two, that they need to speak to someone directly if they have a problem with them. The reason I share this is to highlight how Jesus says to care for one who causes an offense, even under the most extreme circumstances. That is, imagine one causing a trespass or a sin against you, you establishing witnesses, they still don't listen. They don't listen to you. They don't listen to your witnesses. Then you go and bring it to the whole church. And not only have you went to them directly, but you brought other people to go to that person. And then you brought the whole church with you. And they're all on your side saying that what this person did was wrong. And Jesus says what initially sounds troubling. He says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector. But the question that I have to ask you all is how do we treat those who don't know Christ? Because that's what Jesus is implying here, that obviously if people are bringing a sin out before the light and they're still refusing to repent of their sins, how can they repent of something to God if they can't even do it to man for something that might be inner that's hidden and they can't even do it for something that is very outward and apparent that everybody else has been exposed to? And so how do we treat people that don't know Christ? Well, the simple answer is that we witness to them. We give them food, we give them clothing, and we tell them about Christ. So when Jesus says to treat them as a Gentile and a tax collector, it's not necessarily to kick them out or to give them the boot. It's to be a witness to them so that they might know Christ and be reconciled to Christ through a, a, a restorative relationship. The point I'm trying to make is this, and I'm going to give you the whole point now. So that if you fall asleep during my monotone discussion, then you have it now. And this is the point. With long-suffering and kindness, be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you have your Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to three places. Matthew chapter 10, 2 Peter 1, and Hebrews 4. Matthew 10, 2 Peter 1, and Hebrews 4. I want to tell you that there is great fear and trembling when one stands behind the pulpit to preach the gospel. And this fear doesn't come from a lack of confidence, but the recognition of the one from whom the gospel comes. I'm not going to preach about a man who's merely here today and gone tomorrow, but the Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This is the one I fear, the Christ who existed at the beginning, who left the throne, was born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life, yet paid the penalty of a sinner and was crucified on the cross for our sake. But death could not hold him because of his righteousness. And he rose again. He ascended into heaven and promised to return. This is the one who sent out his 12 disciples in Matthew chapter 10. And said this in verse 28, not to fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So today I do not need to provide any trivial points or superficial platitudes. 
Because the Christ who existed in the beginning reveals himself in the word. The scriptures tell us that the word existed in the beginning and that the word was with God and the word was God. Although human authors wrote the scriptures, they exhaled God's very breath. And the combination of words that we find in the scriptures was perfectly and simultaneously written by man, but inspired by God. So therefore, we can have confidence in the word when we realize by whom it was inspired. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 20, says this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. I have confidence that when the scriptures are clearly presented, the Holy Spirit convicts the heart of every man and woman and invites them to make a decision. The Holy Spirit exposes us by bringing the innermost secrets of our lives to the standard of scripture. Therefore today, um, Never say that I convicted you or that I gave a good word, but admit that the, Holy, that the Holy Spirit exposed every thought and intention of our lives before the light. Hebrews chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, if you're following along, it says this, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So I want to take a moment for us to collectively pray over the service and that we would hear God's word and that we'd be receptive to it and that we would respond to it. Can we do that this morning before we begin? All right, let's pray. God, we thank you for this day. God, that we are in a place to where we can come together and read your word and be changed because of it. God, we ask that you would dwell within this place, that your Holy Spirit would invite us to make a decision to follow you today. God, I pray that if there is any heart of stone in here, that you would make it into a heart of flesh. God, allow us to be receptive of your word and changed because of it. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. And everybody said? Amen. Amen. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24, it says this, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The product or evidence of faith in Christ is the fruit only good comes from Christ and everybody in Christ is a new creation. If Christ dwells within a person, the fruit will show. Christ said that people would be recognized by their fruits. One who lives righteously manifests the fruit in the course of daily activities. There are a variety of interpretive tools that one can use when reading the Bible. Um, one who evaluates the use of the text's authority, especially narratives, can identify the text as either descriptive or prescriptive. Descriptive texts, though still helpful and authoritative, 
describe events, and every feature cannot be used to justify a particular behavior. For example, the apostles who shared everything in common in Acts chapter 2, verse 44, is not an ordinance for all people of all generations to refrain from owning private property. And this is especially true since it didn't work out. If you read further in Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira decided to sell property and kept some of the proceeds for themselves and lied to God and died. Prescriptive texts give specific insight and a call to action. The most obvious example of a prescriptive text comes from the Ten Commandments that we read about in Exodus 20, verses 1 through, 20, or 1 through 17. Mistaking these two, descriptive and prescriptive texts, can cause great confusion and error. And the reason I explain that is because the passage that I'm going to use today are prescriptive. That is, they offer specific calls from Christ to act in a certain way. The focus of this message is patience and kindness, and the more literal translation of the word patience is long-suffering. And it captures the willingness to suffer for prolonged periods of times without giving up and never failing to fulfill the mission of God. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was hung in 1945 at the Flossenburg concentration camp after attempting to save the Jews, said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Christ calls his followers to die to themselves and take up their cross. And this call recognizes the cost of following Christ. Therefore, long-suffering is essential for following Christ. Matthew chapter 16, beginning in verse 24, says this, Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. I want to take a moment to share three stories of Christians who experienced long-suffering in their desire to follow Christ. A young woman was, um, oh, and these are true stories. These are actually people, but I'm not using their real names because um, they would probably be disappointed if they found out that I um, uh, described what they were doing because they're so humble. Um, a young girl was accepted to one of the most prestigious academic institutions in the nation, but Christ called her. And when this happened, she gave up her opportunity at prosperity and everyday life and entered into the mission field. Joining the mission field also required her to give up a chance for marriage and family. She gave up the security she had by living in the U.S. under the liberties afforded in the Constitution to preach Christ in a nation that actively persecutes Christians. If the local nationals in the country she lives knew who she was or what she was doing, they would kill her. A gentleman I know has the financial freedom to retire, but he works a job with relatively low income because he does it for the kingdom. Outside of his employment, he gives up his evenings and weekends to serve widows, orphans, and the homeless. And he does all of this 
with health complications that usually require staying home and resting. But because Christ called him, he dies to himself daily, takes up his cross, and fulfills the mission that God set before him with gladness. A missionary friend of mine was terminally ill with cancer. And while laying on what he believed to be his deathbed, he found a way to preach the gospel to people through the internet. Believe it or not, it was Farmville. And rather than spending what he thought to be his final moments alive with his family, he preached the gospel to anyone he could, any way he could. This missionary loved God with all of his soul, and because Christ called him, he never, neglect the, never neglected the mission of God and prospered in long-suffering. And lastly, I want to share that Christ suffered for all of us. In Matthew 27, beginning in verse 27, it says this, Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand. And kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. In this brief verse we realize something significant. That the cross Christ calls us to carry is too burdensome for any of us. And there's a brief exchange that takes place in this final verse. The man helped carry the cross for the master, and in return, the master helps carry the cross for us. We will discuss this further and the help that the Father offers. But for now, we must look at the kindness that Christ calls us to. Kindness in the Bible is not limited to smiles, polite greetings, and welcoming remarks. It is the obligation to serve the least out of a covenant relationship with Christ. Amen. Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 34, says this, But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they grew together, and one of them... Or they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Kindness, therefore, is the fulfillment of loving one's neighbor. There's a book of the Bible that captures kindness greater than any other, and that is the book of Ruth. And the whole book is a revelation of God's providence and redemption, but it is intertwined with each character's loyalty or devotion to one another. In fact, God never actually says or does anything. I have to be careful about the way I word this, but it is out of the loyalty that each character has with one another that God provides. 
What I'm suggesting is that in the book of Ruth, there's not a prophet who's telling the people exactly what God said. And there's not an overtly supernatural miracle that takes place. God did not send an angel to shut the mouth of a lion that we see in Daniel chapter 6. And God did not send an eastern wind to part the sea that we see in Exodus 14. What we have in Ruth is simply the people of God living out godly behavior. And out of their covenant kindness with one another, God establishes provision and redemption of his people. And that godly behavior or loyalty that each character displays, God is able to offer provision and redemption to Ruth and Naomi. The setting takes place in the days of the judges. Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and their sons went to Moab to live because of a famine. Naomi's husband dies and she finds herself with two sons. Eventually her sons get married and then her sons die, and then she's left with her two daughters-in-law, which are Ruth and Orpah. Continuing in verse 8, it says this, But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Hebrew word for kindly or kindness here. I'm going to stand back a little bit. It's pronounced chesed. Everybody try to say it once. Chesed. Yeah. All right. Now, if you want to cover the back of your neck, and I'll stand a little bit further back, um, you can all, we can all pronounce it together on the count of three. One, two, three. Chesed. Very good. Um, it's that hard H, and it works really good if you're sick and you have phlegm in your throat. Um, <laughs> This word is significant in the book. The word does not equate to our contemporary understanding of the word kindness. It suggests a covenant loyalty. The word literally means the act of displaying love out of a covenant relationship. One old friend had told me that he learned the word in seminary to mean covenant love. Actions of love and loyalty stemming out of a covenant relationship with God. The author uses it in each illustration of loyalty of each character. In the first example, Naomi hopes that the Lord would show chesed or kindness to Ruth and Orpah, just as they showed to her. And the next section of the text deals with Naomi attempting to convince her two daughters-in-law to return home to their birth mothers. Continuing in verse 14, it says this, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. Ruth and Naomi eventually went to Bethlehem at the time of the barley harvest, and the rest of the story continues in chapter 2. Beginning in verse 1, the text says, Now Naomi had a relative, of, a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth, the Moabite, said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. The description that we see of Boaz is important because in chapter 3, the author uses the same Hebrew word to describe Ruth's character. And that word is halil, which is not as fun to say. Um, But the author is showing that both Ruth and Boaz are people of high moral character or integrity. Continuing in verse 3, it says this. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And they answered, the Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with me, with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves of the reapers. So she came and continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. Sandra Richter is an Old Testament scholar, and she's taught at a number of evangelical colleges and seminaries like Asbury Theological, Gordon-Conwell, and Wheaton. And Richter offers an explanation to illustrate Ruth's social location. And she says this, She is an illegal immigrant who snuck over the border to work as a day laborer in the grain fields. And she says that one, literally, because that's what Ruth was, and she words it in such a way so that we would have an understanding of Ruth's social location in our context. Continuing in verse 8, it says this, Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field, Or leave this one. But keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly or chesed to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Boaz was not simply being nice or practicing kindness as we would do today. He was actually acting out of loyalty with his covenant relationship with God. I want to take a moment to look at Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 19. This is likely the law that he was following when he was interacting with Ruth. It says this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. Um, In 2017, Ashley and I were blessed to take a group of students on a mission trip to Oroville, Washington, which is about 10 minutes south of the Canadian border. 
And after a long day of working, we would end our day at the lake for two reasons. One, because it offered an opportunity for outreach, and two, because it was essentially our evening shower. I noticed the community that we were serving had a large Spanish-speaking population. It's fairly obvious because I couldn't communicate with them and they couldn't communicate with me. So I asked Mark, who was the leader, why this was. And he, having worked in the area for many years and being familiar with the community, said that many of the locals migrated to the U.S. illegally and lived in the area because of the opportunities for day labor. As I continued to ask questions, he encouraged me with this. He said, their status does not change the mission of God. Amen. And in the same way, that showed us what Ruth's social location was like. And, and it didn't matter what one's status was in the U.S. or what their nationality was or what their ethnicity was. Their status did not change the mission of God. The story of Ruth continues and Boaz describes why he has acted so, so kindly to Ruth and he cared for her. Eventually, Boaz is thought of as the garden redeemer, or from what the footnotes in your Bible might read, the one who is obligated to redeem a relative in a serious difficulty. And this brief poem that we read about actually foreshadows the coming of Christ, who is our garden redeemer, who redeems us from a serious difficulty, and he redeems us who are foreigners. But this story is one of many with cultural norms that have no comparison to our society. Chapters 3 and 4 bring the fulfillment of God's provision as he works through the loyalty of Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And the point is that the sheer gratitude of the gospel ought to compel Christians to a covenant kindness meaning only the gratitude that we have for what Christ did for us should compel us to kindness to other people. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 13, verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. It is quite difficult for us to show patience or long-suffering and kindness. And truthfully... We cannot meet the expectation Jesus lays before us without his help. Fortunately, we know from reading the scriptures that Jesus promised a helper. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, he promised to send the Holy Spirit to be the helper. This is what it says in Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or season that the Father is fixed by his own authority. The disciples came to Jesus and were asking this question. God, when would you restore all things? Perhaps they asked, when will your kingdom come and when will your will be done? I don't know about you, but I've had similar prayers in my own life looking at the state of our current society and our world. It is now not uncommon to hear people Massacred at shootings. There are nations invading other nations. Adults are teaching perverse things to our children and encouraging them to make permanent modifications to their bodies to gain acceptance. 
Boys are calling themselves girls and girls are calling themselves boys. Namely, our society increasingly calls good evil and evil good. But I think we still have the same question. God, when will you restore all things? God, when will you let your kingdom come and when will you let your will be done? Because we can't have patience and kindness on our own. We need the help from the Father. God, when will you do it again? When will you restore all things? When will you bring a new revival? Have any of you ever asked that and prayed that prayer? Can I share something with you? Because I believe God will do it again. I believe God will bring a new revival. I believe He will pour out His Holy Spirit again. Do you mind if I share something with you? Okay, I guess I'm not going to share it. Y'all, can I share that this morning? Okay, hallelujah. Because I truly believe, looking at the times, that God will do it again and that He is capable of doing it again. I believe that God will pour out His Holy Spirit on all flesh again. The youth and the elderly, those with an abundance and those without, on the men and women of all ethnic origins, God will pour out His Holy Spirit. On that day, the children and the elderly will have dreams and visions of the Son and proclaim the good news. On that day, the mute will utter the gospel of salvation. The deaf will hear the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven whispered from afar. The lame will rise and carry the good news from city to city while the saints cry out, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messengers who bring the good news. The children of the day will declare the profound mysteries of the kingdom of heaven and reveal them to the wise. I believe a day will come when the youth will be filled with the Holy Spirit and intoxicated with serving Christ. The youth of this day will not fear men who can only destroy their bodies, but the God alone who has authority over both soul and body in hell. They will live in a way that is pleasing to Christ, not to satisfy the hearts of men, but to hear, well done, good and faithful servant from the Master at the judgment seat. They will endure persecution with gladness, not failing to preach Christ with confidence. Finally, after long suffering, I believe a day will come when Christ will descend from heaven in the same way He ascended. On that day, the mountains will melt at His feet like wax melting from a candle. The seas will calm and bow down at His glory, and the stones beneath us will rise and cry out that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus promised His Holy Spirit to the disciples in the first century, and I believe that's still available for us. And we need it if we want to be people who show kindness and patience to a hurting and broken world. And this is how Jesus finished the response. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The cross that Jesus calls us to bear is too heavy. We do not need to wait for the heavens to open up to live out the will of God because He has shown us what to do in His Word. When you see somebody who's hungry, feed them because it is a service to Christ. If you see somebody who's thirsty, give them a drink because it's a service to Christ. And give them warm clothing and visit the people who are in prison because it is a service to Christ. And when you have a brief encounter with a stranger, be a witness. This might sound simple and easy to do, but as you show faithfulness for what God provides you with, He will give you more talents. 
And the talents I'm talking about are not necessarily a financial blessing. What I mean is this. If Christ calls you to feed somebody and you're faithful with feeding them, He might give you more people to feed and you might not be able to feed them out of an abundance. You might have to give up your meal so that they can be filled and you can be hungry. And in the same way, on a cold winter, if you're faithful with what God gives you, He might allow you to give people warm clothing but he might give you more talents. He might give you more people to take care of. And then you might have to give up your only coat so that they would be warm and you would be cold. That's what it means to be long-suffering. And the point is this. With long-suffering and kindness, be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you to stand with me. And we're going to pray. And I'm going to ask Pastor Randy to come up and close in a moment. But I want to invite you to have two specific prayers this morning. The first one is this, God, do it again. God, restore your kingdom. God, bring a new revival. God, let your kingdom come and your will be done. So God, do it again. That's the first prayer that I want to invite you all to pray this morning. And the second one is this, God, use me. Here I am, Lord, use me. Do it again. Bring a new revival. Do a new thing in the land. Restore your kingdom. Let your kingdom come and your will be done. And the second is like it. Use me. And if you want to extend it even further, you might realize that by yourself you can't do what God has set before you. And you need the help from the Holy Spirit. So I want to invite you all to pray that with me. Because your invitation this morning is not going to be up here. It's going to be out there. To lay hands on the sick to share the gospel, to be a witness of the good news with patience and kindness. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you for this day. God, we ask that you would do it again. That you would bring a new revival in the land. God, that you would cause the hearts of people to melt. And God, that you would call them to serve you again. God, we pray that you'd bring a new revival. God, that people would dream dreams and have visions of your son and turn to you. God, we pray that you would perform miracles and wonders so that people would know that you have authority on earth to forgive sins. And God, we pray that you would use us. God, that you would bless us with your Holy Spirit. And God, let us be vessels of your truth and righteousness. We pray this all in Jesus' name. On behalf of Pastor Randy and the entire staff at Everyday Church, we'd like to thank you for joining us today. For more information on the church, please visit us at everydaychurch.xyz.